In this week's episode, we're sitting down with Zach Scow. He runs the Positive Change Program. That is P-A-W-S-I-T-I-V-E Change. He runs an amazing nonprofit in our prison system here in California where he brings rescue dogs into the prison population and literally trains inmates on how to become basically dog trainers. And it is really an incredible thing. But what is so cool about Zach's story is that he's in recovery. Um, He was a really bad alcoholic who ended up with liver failure. And he's still living with that same liver today, 11 years later. He's been sober for 11 years. He created this incredible program. And his story is one of redemption and of healing and giving back to the community in an amazing way. I hope you guys really love this episode. Hey, it's Alexis Haynes, and this is my podcast, Recovering from Reality. Hi, we are here today with Zach Scott. Am I saying that right? It's Scow. Scow. No one ever gets it right. Scow. Don't don't feel bad. Is it S-K-O-W? Yeah, it's it's actually Danish for forest. Oh, wow. S-K-O-V is how it's And you're very much so like a mountain man. That's what you feel. Those are the vibes I'm getting from you right now. I am. I'm a converted mountain man. So I grew up (laughs) at the beach, in Hermosa Beach, but Mm. now I live in Tehachapi and I am by default a mountain man. Yes. Well, I just explained to you how a bear broke into my truck. Yeah. But that's definitely. <laughs> You're definitely, definitely a mountain me, man. <laughs> get me pegged as a, and that I've been feuding with this bear for the last two months. <laughs> yeah. So I came across your podcast, Positive, and that's P A W. You yeah. guys, um, change positive change program program. Yeah. And I followed along because I'm the mama of a beautiful pit bull who I love, who is a rescue. And I just love dogs. Um, Positive Change Program is a program where rescue dogs get matched up with inmates Mm -hmm. who then train the dogs to go and be housed with their new loving families. What an amazing thing. It's the best thing in the world. It's the, it is the thing I'm most passionate about, the most motivated about. And I feel like we were only scratching the surface of the potential of this program. And, um, you know, when we first started, it was just to pair rescue dogs with inmates and see what happens. There's a big Mm -hmm. substance abuse program element and we knew that would be positive. We knew it would help, you know, people get along in a very segregated environment like prison. And we knew it would help a lot of these dogs that are failure to thrive in the shelter environment because prison's so structured and and they have so much time with the dogs. Uh, But what we didn't see is all the other things that this produced. I mean, it's, it's kind of revolutionized the the yards that we operate on in in the six different prisons that we're in. It's revolutionized the whole environment, the whole culture within that yard. It's changed everything. Mm. You know, it's changed um, how races and gangs get along. It's changed how certain elements of you know, drug dealing happen or don't happen on the yard. And then most importantly, we've produced, you know, half of our guys that have been released from prison, all of whom served, you know, 10 plus year terms. Uh, Half of them are now professional dog trainers or professionals within the industry, which is, um, it's been remarkable. I mean, it's unbelievable what these guys have been able to achieve on the outside. And we didn't expect that. We knew they would be good, but we didn't expect that they would some of our guys have gotten out of prison after two years in our program, and, and they hit the ground running as soon as they were released. Um, one of our guys, Jason Morey, shout out to Jason and Canine Breakthrough. That's his company. He's down in Huntington Beach, mm. you know, served uh, 13 years in prison uh, for a loss of life crime and, you know, was, was on America's Most Wanted and had this just stack of things going against him. And he dedicated himself to our program and, and bettering himself, and, and when he got out, he just launched headlong into dog training and is the probably the most influential and popular dog trainer in Orange County. 
That's amazing. Yeah. I always talk about that. I feel like everyone gets sick of me saying this, but I'm just going to keep saying it, is that I really believe that at the root of addiction and at the root of crime and at the root of all of these huge problems that we're seeing in our society today is trauma. And so the solution to that trauma is community. And what an amazing thing that you guys are able to be doing in these prisons is bringing people who would maybe not be in a community together normally together for a purpose Mm -hmm. and giving them a purpose in their lives. And it's so remarkable. And I want to jump more into that, but I want to hear your story first, because obviously behind every great mission, there's somebody with a brutal story. Um, I know that happy birthday is your 40th birthday. I also know that you're sober. How many years sober are you? I will be 11 October 12th. Amazing. So coming yeah. up on 11 years. 11 years. Incredible. There. I was released. Um, I got out of the hospital. Uh, I was admitted to the comprehensive transplant program at Cedar sinai mm. 11 years ago last week. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Like I said in the beginning, I'm from Hermosa Beach, California. And um, I guess part of part of my early addictions were, were cultural in nature. You know, I'm from the beach. That's kind of what we do is is get faded and fight, you know? Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, part of that is just growing up in that environment. But um, like you just alluded to, lots of trauma. Uh, you know, things that happened to me as a kid that I didn't know how to rectify. Um, you know, other, I'll just come right out and say it. And You know, I was um, treated inappropriately, you know, in a sexual manner as a kid and um, didn't know how to identify with that, didn't know how what that meant. And didn't really know that it was the catalyst behind what gave me so much anxiety around women, you mm. know, um, having had that experience with having been, I always hesitate to use the words sexually as, like assaulted or abused or molested or any of those things because, um, I don't know, maybe I'm a little afraid of judgment, but, but that's what happened. And, um, you know, I couldn't connect that experience to, to why I was so anxious around women, you know, and, and I, I mean like paralyzing, you know, fight or flight. Every, anytime I was in an intimate situation, you know, when I was a pretty good looking kid, um, you know, I always did well in sports and in school and was pretty popular and, but I couldn't bring myself to, um, you know, be intimate cause it was, I would go into a full fight or flight mode and I just had mm-hmm. to remove myself from the situation cause I, I couldn't breathe. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't function. Um, and I didn't know, I just thought something was wrong with me. You know, I just thought it was broken. Um, and the only thing that really helped me to adjust to that anxiety was, was drugs and alcohol. You know, it was the only, only way I could feel comfortable amongst my peers, um, and kind of meet every, the expectations I thought people had of me is if I were intoxicated, you know, I'll never forget like the first, first time I drank a, an entire 40, like of malt liquor, <laughs> by myself, you know, I think I was like 14. And, uh, I just remember thinking this is exactly what I want. You know, we got, got in a fight that night and we went to a party in Manhattan beach. And I remember getting home and like stumbling up the steps. And I just remember thinking like, this is for me, you know, this is what I, this is what I've been looking for is this feeling and how comfortable I felt. And, um, I guess, you know, it's hard for me to admit this, but I've just always had a hard time being me, you know, I've always had a hard time and, and alcohol and drugs were, were what helped me feel like me. Although I think that was um, a complete um, non-truth, you know, I think that's just, I was able to, it's how I coped, you know, and it's how I, I dealt with things. Um, so, you know, I, I kind of, a uh, pretty typical um, drunk a log, you know, a lot of bad decisions, a lot of, you know, you get led into drug dealing and, um, you know, a lot of poor decisions, you know, associating with bad people and, um, with sparing you all the details, you know, long story short, my liver failed in 2008. You know, I dr- at that time I was drinking 24 hours a day. You know, I, I hadn't been for five years since I got in a car accident in 2003, broke my chest, broke my shoulder. And, um, and that's when I transitioned to 24 hour a day drinking, it literally like sun up to sundown was to try to cope with that injury. And, um, six months later when I was healed up, I, I tried to quit, you know, I, I don't know if anyone out there has done this, but I, I got myself some weed and some pills and I was like, I'm going to get through, I'm going to go mm-hmm. 24 hours without yep. drinking. You know, I had the, I had it all planned out and, uh, the physical withdrawals were, and emotional withdrawals were so immediate. It scared the crap out of me. You know, I, it was a couple hours, you know, and I was, you know, not 
physically able to, uh, you know, I was really struggling. I mean, I had thoughts of suicide entered quickly, you know, I would shake and vomit and sweat and I was very clearly physically addicted. And in that day in, in 2003, I just committed to drinking. I just said, well, shoot, you know, I'm going to have to do this for, for, I guess the rest of my life, uh, because it's the only thing that helps me feel whole. Um, I'm fit now physically addicted and I don't know what to do. And I didn't have the guts to check myself in anywhere or ask for help. And did you have family that was like, Hey Zach, this is, this isn't looking too good. Yeah. Yeah, of course. You know, I had a lot of friends that are close to me that, um, and family and even my family was, were alcoholic. Um, Mm. so I think any real, uh, any real honest assessment of me would have required an honest assessment of themselves, which they weren't ready to do. Um, you know, my mom's now sober almost eight years and we kind of did that together. And so that's, it's all changed now, you know, but back then, and also the people I associated with, everyone was like this, you know, so when just about everyone around you is using or drinking, you know, daily, um, you don't really stick out that much. You might be a little bit worse off than other people. I also just hit it really well. You know, I was employed for a good chunk of that. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was a it was a very very it was a lot of dark years with no direction and a lot of hopelessness and a lot of just trying to stay alive, just trying to um, not, you know, fall into complete darkness, you know. And um, by the time my liver failed, you know, it was it was a bizarre experience because I I was drinking like a box of wine, it's either a like a close to a handle of whiskey a day, or a box of wine, which is like. I don't know. It's like five liters. It's a ton of alcohol, you know, and that was just what I was drinking to, to get by to, yeah, I wasn't, wasn't even really trying to get that faded. I was just trying to exist. Yeah. You know, people, people assume that I was just out raging and I really wasn't. I was just trying to get by. I was just trying to keep my head above water and it just required more and more alcohol and more and more drugs. Every time I got high, you know, I, I needed more and I needed more. It was just a bad you know, the algorithm of the, of the addict is pretty tough because it just, you keep requiring more and more and more and you have less and less and less resources to get what you need. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, when I, I started to turn yellow in 2008, my stomach started to get kind of big and I had some ideas. I knew, I thought that I was having problems, but I didn't know what, and I was really in denial. Um, I finally ended up going to the, to the doctor and you know, he took one look at my blood tests and he said, you're in complete liver failure and you need to go to a hospital immediately. I walked outside and, you know, my dad was in the parking lot and I just told him, you know, hey, we're going to be all right. Uh, you know, just wine with dinner and uh, no more Excedrin PM. And I just lied through my teeth because I was terrified. You know, I just heard a doctor tell me that I needed to remove the only thing that was keeping me alive, mm-hmm. I felt like, which is alcohol and drugs. And there's no way I can do that. You know, so I just, I, uh, I started to wear like baggy shirts so you couldn't see my stomach. Um, my stomach kept getting bigger and you could like hear the liquid. It's called ascites, you know, when mm-hmm. you're in liver failure and, um, my belly button herniated and I would, I would tape my belly button down cause it stuck out like a boner through my shirt. Yeah. So I, I had a herniated belly button before I know. Yeah. <laughs> so I'd tape that bad boy down yeah. and I'd, I'd sit out in the sun and try to tan so that I wouldn't look so yellow. Yeah. And I would just wear sunglasses all the time. And I started to bruise like everything was purple. Um, so I always wore long sleeve shirts and, and basically just lied until I couldn't lie about it anymore. You know, I started, um, I started to have this condition called esophageal varices where I started to you know, vomit up blood Blood. Mm -hmm. and, um, you can't really hide it at that point. Um, you know, my dad had been caring for me. And so I got checked into Bakersfield Memorial hospital and, um, I don't remember the first three days, you know, I'm assuming because of alcohol withdrawal, um, and my kidneys were in real bad shape. So Mm -hmm. it was liver failure. You know, you have gallbladder issues, pancreatitis, I mean, everything's going wrong, you know, and they're trying to get frozen plasma transfusions in me, like constantly to try to drop my INR so that they could biopsy me and try to figure out, you know, if I had a chance. And the doctor just came in and said, you know, real simply uh, looked at my dad and just said, you know, your son needs a liver transplant and he's not going to get one. Um, So that began a six week stay at Bakersfield Memorial with like no hope. 
Um, mm. It was just got, you know, I got addicted to morphine and Dilaudid like immediately. <laughs> they, you know, back then they had the pain chart on the wall and mm-hmm. you just, there's the smiley face, the the normal face, the frowny face, yep. and then the frowny face. And if you tell face. them that it's bad, they I'm, have to give yeah, you meds. I'm frowny cry face yes. right now. And someone <laughs> needs to inject me with some yes. dope immediately. And, and yes, this is before we knew about how like emotional pain can actually like affect our physical bodies too. And yeah, this was kind of, uh, thankfully we're moving out and transitioning out of this model, uh-huh. but it used to be like any time that you go into a hospital and claim a pain level of, mm. um, I think it's seven or more, they would have to give yeah. you medication. Yeah, the entire the entire philosophy, so what, those, what most hospitals are founded on, their founding principles, which are like their bylaws, deal with, um, you know, patient pain management. Mm-hmm. We want to keep our patients comfortable and that's our that's our primary focus is to keep our patient, patients comfortable. So with that being your, your guiding principle, you know, it, I understand why, why that was their focus, but it got out of control immediately. You know, I knew every three hours who I could, which nurses mm-hmm. I could mess with to try to get me uh, an injection ahead of time or try to get me some sort of pills to, you know, it was awful, you know, and then I had to have a handler in the hospital who basically watched me 24 hours a day because so, I was a danger to myself and others. Um, it was a nightmare, you know, and uh, really with zero hope, you know, it was just, you need a liver transplant. You're not going to get one. I was in a hospital that didn't perform liver transplants. Only seven hospitals in California do that. Um, at the time it was like, uh, you know, Scripps, UCLA, USC, Cedars. And um, we had tried everywhere and we just got denied and denied. And, um, you know, the first, the real big, like first piece of hope for me um was I kind of came to in my hospital room and there was these guys all around my bed and they were dressed up, you know, like with ties and one had like a short sleeve button up shirt on. Mm-hmm. looked like he was going to a parole hearing and uh, he probably, he, probably, he probably had. Yeah. <laughs> so they were sent over from H and I from, yeah. um, you know, from mm-hmm. our local, uh, our local chapter there in Bakersfield sent some guys to, um, you know, lend some, experience strength and hope and uh, here was this dude at the foot of my bed who had gotten through liver failure in prison you know mm. it was hep c related i didn't have hepatitis c i had acute alcoholic hepatitis which they're, they're very different you know hep c is a virus whereas acute alcoholic hepatitis is just abusing yourself but nonetheless he'd gotten through it in prison and my dad's looking at this guy going what you know this is incredible like here we have mm. a person that served survived and he looks healthy and he was like not too much older than me um so that was a big deal so that kind of my dad's an aeronautical engineer so that that just set my dad on this course to we're gonna figure this out Um, you know never say die attitude like he's just gonna handle it Mm. um but it didn't get much easier you know it was uh at that point they were trying to send me home on hospice care and just kind of let me you know expire at home with loved ones and my dogs and all the rest of it and you know, um, I'll never forget my dad used to, whenever my dad would go home, uh, cause home was about an hour away from the hospital. He'd, he'd always go, son, I need you to come home because I can't get tug to come in the fucking house. And tug mm. was my dog. And he said my dog was just staring, you know, down the driveway, um, you know, waiting for me to come home and he would just sit outside and, uh, and <laughs> that, that was, I spoke that language, you know, so that was my dad's motivator to get me to try to come home. And, um, and so what ended up happening is, you know, it was a, it was a long battle that, that, that just got, seemed to get worse and worse and worse. And, uh, I think I was 140 pounds at the time. You know, I looked like the sickest sick person you've ever seen. I'm completely hooked on Dilaudid. And, mm. um, the plan we developed was to try to get into a transplant program through Cedar sinai by going through the emergency room. So sign me out against doctor's orders. You know, every doctor there and the nurses were like, you guys are out of your mind. Like he's, he's terminal and you're taking him out of a hospital setting. Um, you know, this is not advisable, but we did. And, you know, my mom sped me down to Cedars. And I, the only thing I remember was telling her that, uh, it wasn't liver failure that was going to kill me. It was my mom driving on the freeway. <laughs> she was like, this so, Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh my gosh yeah we got admitted to we we went through the emergency room and got admitted i was born at cedar sinai oddly enough and and we got admitted to the comprehensive transplant program there through the emergency room they they obviously knew that i'd been at another hospital i mean i think i still had my hospital wristbands on Mm. so 
but they were gracious enough to accept me. And, um, I got to meet with Dr. Tram Tran, who was the head of transplant at the time. And she basically said, this is real close. You know, you're in, you're in terrible, terrible shape. Um, but we're going to take you off of a bunch of your medicine. You're going to have to go, you know, detox, Yeah. which might kill you. So stay near a hospital. Mm -hmm. Um, and they kept me there for basically a day and said, you know, because of hospital policies, if we keep you here, it's going to kill you. So we're going to send you home. And like we said, stay near an emergency room because you're going to have some problems. Yeah. And so that's what we did. And, um, you know, I, I conned my dad into taking me to the hospital for shots of dope for probably a week or two. And then after that, I had to beat it and, um, you know, got through opiate withdrawal with my dogs, you know, full. I didn't. I've been through withdrawals before, but nothing like that. I know. I detox both times in jail. Oh, cold turkey yeah. so brutal it was heavy yeah did you have hallucinations i had yeah and full-on like shitting myself and vomiting at the same time oh, violently yeah. ill for hours i mean i feel bad every episode i feel like we talk about my stomach issues is it like weird that i just got really happy that you just no, said shitting you yourself because now i can freely talk about it you can freely <laughs> talk about it we all have those moments you guys Oh, if you're an addict in recovery, then you know what we're talking about, okay? Uh-huh. No, I mean, um, yeah, like cold sweats, you know, and nothing is more demoralizing than when you are in jail. So I was in protective custody, and um, so I was by myself, right? And I woke up in the middle of the night. I'd never been through withdrawal before because I used straight for like five years. So I had no idea like what, you know, or four and a half years, what – that was like and when I woke up literally shitting and barfing at the same time in my um, cell Mm. I didn't know what was happening to me nothing is worse though then you can't get you can't clean it so they give you one outfit for the week right and you get your one outfit your couple pairs of underwear a couple pairs of socks and your sheets for your bed Mm -hmm. that's called a roll-up you guys if you've never been to jail and you have to call the trustees at like 2 a.m and go I'm really sorry, but I got really sick. And can you please bring me a new roll up? And they come up to your room and it's, it's like the exorcist was in there and you have, you, you just have to like, they hand you a mop and they hand you some disinfectant spray and they switch out your clothes and you, I couldn't even shower. They wouldn't let me downstairs into the shower to clean myself up. There is nothing more like humiliating Mm -hmm. than that moment. Yeah. Yeah. I can relate big time. I had some, yeah, I, I think I have too many shitting myself memories. <laughs> I only have that one, through but my yeah, mind to, to really <laughs> brutal. Well, it, we might it might segue nicely into my big aha moment. You know, well, first of all, like my my first real connection with my <laughs> rescue dogs was getting through withdrawals. So I, mm-hmm. you know, going through, I thought I was losing my mind. You know, I, I was seeing demons in the ceiling mm-hmm. and blood coming off the walls, mm-hmm. and I was hearing shit, and I was shakings and shitting and all of that stuff mm-hmm. you know and, um, the shakes oh yeah you think and i was so fragile at the time you know yeah. i was so fragile you know that i it, it almost killed me and and um but we got and just having my dogs there that i could you know put my hands on them mm-hmm. and have them ground me you know marley in particular he was just this powerful presence and he just helped me feel safe helped me feel comfortable you know i mean shit i was seeing legit demons you know and i didn't know what the fuck was happening to me i hadn't i didn't know and so I got my, my Rottweiler pit bull with me. And I'm like, all right, it's me and you, buddy. Take, mm. take on these demons that are pouring out of the ceiling and mm-hmm. whatever else. Um, but yeah, that, that again, using the uh, shitting ourselves is a nice transition. Um, <laughs> the, big, the, the best moment of my life was kind of born out of the darkest moment of my life. Um, mm. So I had, you know, I was taking a lot of medication. They took me off most of my medication. I was on like 15 different types of things just to keep you alive and yeah. liver failure. And and they took me off a lot of them, but I was still on this one called Enulose. It's also called Lactulose, and it makes you lose your bowels. It's to keep ammonia off your brain. Mm. Um, you get ammonia buildup on your brain when you're in liver failure because it's not being cycled through your liver, and it, you, you lose all coherence. You don't know what day it is. You vacillate between present and totally lost. You need to be normal mm. one minute and then – you know, not know what your name is. That's scary. It's really strange. So they, they have you taking this, this stuff. And, um, so it was like the middle of the night and I'd shit myself and, um, you know, I got up out of bed. I had these like rubber sheets and it was two in the morning. So my dad, I didn't want to wake my dad up and have him, you know, have to clean me up. 
So I walk into the bathroom and um, and I look at myself in the mirror and and uh, it was just such a because I was you know butt naked with like yeah. my own. This is already become feces like a everywhere. NC-17. Yeah, yeah this it was is disgusting. Awful. Yeah, and, and I got this little <laughs> like. I looked like I was 90 and I had this little mm. flat, wrinkly yellow butt with all <laughs> yes. these bruises on it. Yeah. And I just went, man, I don't even know what I'm looking at. Well, who yes. is that? And I didn't recognize my eyes. Like that was the real scary part is I'd just look staring at myself going, who the fuck is that? Yeah. You know, who is that? And how did this happen? You know, yeah. and um, it was terrifying, you know, and, and I just th- thought to myself, like, I have to, you know, end this. This can't go any longer. You know, I'm I'm a burden. I'm, I've so far passed being a burden. Like I'm a liability mm. 100 percent to everyone that's close to me, to myself. I'm probably a liability to my dogs at this point, you know, and I look behind me and I'm just sobbing at this point. I'm just looking in the mirror, crying my ass off, covered in poo, you know, and I look behind me and my dogs are looking. All three of them are looking up at me like I'm, you know like I'm Barack Obama and Brad Pitt rolled into one. Like I'm the greatest, like I'm the hottest guy they've ever seen. <laughs> like the sun rises and sets with me. And, and um, I usually get highly emotional when I say this, but uh, they just saw me, you know, they saw that dad was still in there mm. and they saw that this person that they love, I mean, your, your dogs love your soul. They don't give a shit about what you're wearing, where you come from, uh, what your name is, what your identity is. They, they care about your soul. Yeah. Like the, the, the energy that's, that's transmitted between you and your animals. That's what they pick up on. They, they feel the connection, you know, they connect to your soul and having my dogs recognize my soul, recognize me for me as if to say, you know, Hey, I know, we know you're in there and we know you're in there and you're going to be all right. You know, um, I fucking needed that, you know? And, um, yeah, I, I thought, you know, I've got to, if I don't just go take my life right now, then, then we got to do something. We got to try and, and, um, just change. And, and so the next day I didn't sleep that night and, and just woke up and well, walked outside when the sun came up and journaled and, and uh, made this commitment to my dogs that we were going to, we were going to start to try to get better, that we were going to, you know, go to meetings and we were going to walk and we were going to try and survive the six months needed to get a liver transplant that we were going to commit. You know, that was my big, like where I engaged and, um, and that's what we did. We just started walking, you know, and I couldn't get very far at first. You know, it was like, um, I could go like a block and we did it like six, seven times a day, every day for months. Um, and I just started getting better and started getting better and a little bit better. And, um, if you graphed it on a chart, you know, I was, when I was in the hospital, I was just getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And then, when I started to spend time with my dogs, I got better and better and better and better to the point where, you know, I was going to Cedars every three days for reviews, like for imaging and blood tests and stuff. And they're going, we don't know what you're doing, man, but keep doing it. You know, you're getting better. And, um, and all of this is, is in anticipation of six months. If I make it six months, then I can qualify for transplant. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah, we just, there's a lot of beautiful things that happened. A lot of God shots that I just am incredibly fucking grateful for. You know, I, I, um, like one of the first times we went walking in the morning, it was, you know, we're up in the mountains and, and there was this, um, I got all my dogs with me and I couldn't walk them on leash cause I was too weak. Like they could pull me over. So we're all walking and, and, uh, it's like six in the morning and the sun is coming up, you know, over the mountains. And I see this silhouette uh, my immediate thought is that's a fucking bear, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> you know, this is bad. I'm a beach kid and I'm still hadn't really, hadn't been up in Tatchby very long. And, uh, as we get closer, I realized it was a, it was a man. It was an old man in a parka and he's just, he's like five feet tall and he's waddling real slow. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he comes up to me and, and he doesn't say anything about the way I looked. He didn't remark like, Jesus, what happened to you? You know, he looked like shit. He just started asking about the dogs. He just wanted to know about who's this and who's that and what's their story. And and, uh, and I asked him the same thing. I was like, what are you doing up here, man? Like, it's is it safe for you to be out here? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. It was November and it was cold, super cold and in the mountains. And and his, uh, his name was Wendell. Everyone called him Wen. And his wife had just died. He'd been taking care of her for the last three years. She died of cancer. And that's all he did was take care of her. And they used to do that walk. They did that walk every day for 25 years. And it was the first time he was doing that walk without his wife. Mm. And here I am like depending on people feeling sorry for me, you know, to get as an addict, I 
and an alcoholic. I needed people to feel sorry for me so I could get what I needed. That's how that was my means to an end. And people didn't stop. That was when I got sick, it was more. It was, oh my God, you poor child. We're so sorry. And you look like terrible and we're praying for you. And it was just all pity. And he didn't give me any pity. And here he, this guy was, you know, having just lost everything that was important to him. And, uh, and he wasn't feeling sorry for himself. He was putting one foot in front of the other and fucking doing it, you know? And, um, so when, and I started to walk together, he used to join me on my walks with the dogs. And, um, and then this dude got, he sells his house. He's 80 at the time. Okay. <laughs> he's 80 years old. <laughs> he sells his house, buys an RV and goes selling like vitamins to old people homes <laughs> and finds a wife at, on this little journey of his gets married and he died like five years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, you know, what could have been the, what could have been permission for him to just quit, you know, yeah. he lost his wife, he's old, you know, maybe you can just kind of exist in obscurity and like fade away. He mm-hmm. didn't. He said, fuck that. I'm going to go out and get it. And he did. And so that was a, I'm very grateful for that, um, you know, introduction into what being tough actually looks like, you know, um, yeah, it's showing up when you don't want to. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah, and and uh, and then sure enough, you know, we just kept doing that routine. It was it was a couple meetings a day, and um, started adding dogs to my pack, and started adding puppies, and building kennels in the garage, and um, building like I couldn't build much, but my dad would help me with things. And and Marley's Mutts was just born out of the garage um, in liver failure, and I started to write like really fun adoption posters. This is like right at the beginning of social media. So mm-hmm. we didn't start out with social media. I just made posters for dogs and put them all over town. And I'd write them just funny, just get creative. But, you know, I hadn't been creative as a human being. In so long. Uh-huh. Oh, my God. You missed that. Totally. Like just the ability to think of anything beyond getting loaded. Totally. But then to start expanding our minds and being silly again and laughing again mm-hmm. and enjoying these moments, you – you forget and Mm -hmm. that that makes me emotional because it's like i feel there's so many people out there that even if they're not using substances are just trying to get by every single day Mm -hmm. and all of that joy is stripped you know what i mean and so it's an amazing thing when you realize you know that life can be so much more Mm -hmm. than the tiny little boxes that we put ourselves in yeah totally For, for me being creative was um was reserved for artists and musicians, you know, mm-hmm. I didn't know how to do that shit. So I thought, well, you know, I don't get to be creative. Yeah. So to discover photography and, and to get to write real, you know, I did a lot of like first person stories about the dogs that were borderline <laughs> inappropriate, I love it. you know, uh, I just love to make it. them different, you know? Yeah. And, um, yeah. And then my community caught on and everybody started, um, I basically panhandled for spay and neuter money at, at, uh, you know, meetings is what mm-hmm. I did. That's how we started was I sold, I made t-shirts with iron on transfers. So I go to Kmart and buy every single white t-shirt, a Hanes white t-shirt. Yeah. And then I'll buy a bunch of iron on transfers. And I had done the Marley's Mutts logo with my buddy, Chris, and I would make shirts and I made tons of them and they were all Rasta colored because it's Marley <laughs> named after yeah. my dog named after Bob Marley. And uh, so I brought like, I remember it was a, uh, it was a men's stag meeting and there's it was like 150 people there and i brought a whole stack of shirts right and uh everyone was like oh man this is great we're so glad you're doing it everyone had been rooting me on and then a couple of guys were like we just don't understand why it's mexican flag color <laughs> you know and that just ruined me i was like it's rasta colors for crying out loud <laughs> you know it's marley's yes. mutts and they didn't understand and that crushed me and then i just went and made like 200 more shirts that were just black <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah that's how it was born was just you know um yeah just in liver failure trying to help dogs and working with the humane society who i'd been working with for a few years and uh, one thing led to another and my community just kind of said you should do this you know you should you should start a non-profit dog rescue and i was like what you know i mean that's what i wanted to do but mm-hmm. you know when you're a, essentially a drunk with a dream you know, who's like in terrible shape and has zero confidence, you know, you don't think you can do any of those things. And like, is the IRS even going to let me, 
<laughs> you know, like, what are they going to read this and go, oh, this dude? Wait, the, we're going to let this guy have yeah. a... No a, fucking way. What is it? 501... 501c3. C3. <laughs> yeah. And so my, you know, I just didn't think it was possible. So for the first year, we operated as like a doing business as just selling t-shirts mm. that I made. That's how we got money. And then I, and then I remember I lost a litter of Parvo puppies where eight puppies got Parvo yeah. and half of them died and mm. I spent, I had like $3,500 in the bank, which I thought was like a million. I thought 3,500 bucks and we can do anything. Sky's the limit. And then it was just <laughs> toast. It was gone. It was just gone. And I just went, okay, this is not, I can't do this. You know, and I was working at the time and you know, every ounce is going into rescue. And, um, I just thought this isn't feasible, you know, yeah. but it was and and everybody in my, my group, you know, especially my, you know, the people that I, um, got sober with were just incredibly supportive and just said you should you know this is important and um yeah no that was that was almost 11 years ago amazing so yeah. did you get the liver yeah good thank you for bringing it back <laughs> no so what happened was six months well, i'm um, on the edge of my seat yeah, here <laughs> so i had my, my review at six months and, yeah and um yeah it was remarkable dr tran sat me down and she said you know again we don't know what you've been doing that's different but we only see you know, stage four cirrhosis patients, you know, either die or get transplants. That's what we see. That's why it's mm -hmm. called end stage is because, you, yeah. you know, you're coming to a, an end that either involves death or a transplant. And um, she'd said something like 0.05% of, of patients actually reverse some of their liver scarring. And, you know, I was one of them. Um, and I was by no means out of the woods. I was still sick, you know, but um, I was much better. I wasn't yellow anymore. My stomach, you know, had gone down a lot. You know, it wasn't so swollen and the bruising wasn't so bad. And um, they basically said, you know, we're, we're, you're not transplant eligible right now because you don't need one. And we're going to keep you enrolled in the program because, you know, you've already, you were end stage. And so I'm still a comprehensive transplant patient. I still go in every six months. I still get, you know, uh, abdominal ultrasounds and liver CTs and different testing to make sure that I'm okay. And, you know, they keep an eye out for, for cancerous nodules and growths and, bad things that, that are, that accompany liver failure. But, um, for the most part, I, you know, I have like stage three fibrosis, which is just plain old liver disease, <laughs> which is a lot better than, than, uh, cirrhosis. And, and, um, yeah, so, you know, I, I sponsor, you know, people who are in liver, who have liver issues who are in liver failure and, and some people with kidney issues. And, um, I, I took kind of a unique path to wellness with smoothies and exercise and, and a lot of different things. So um, when you're enrolled in transplant programs, they don't really give you any advice. They don't really tell you how to eat. They don't tell you how to exercise. They, you know, I have a buddy that I met in transplant who's HIV positive, um, borderline. He, at the time, he was borderline, you know, had almost had AIDS and was diabetic. And he was getting no advice other than, you know, stay away from yeah, from, it's just meds and yeah. X, Y, and Z and mm -hmm. very simple. And yeah. yeah, we totally leave out any of the preventative stuff and mm -hmm. and the more holistic approach of taking care of our mind and our body 100%. and our spirit. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there was no direction. None. Yeah. You know, not even a little bit. They made me go to meetings. I, I was the only person that I've met thus far who was on a liver card at meetings. So I had to... <laughs> I had to go and have them fill it out. <laughs> yeah, and then I had to fax it to Cedars to let them For know. For people who was... don't know what we're talking about, there <laughs> you can get sentenced to AA where you have to go and bring this little card with you mm -hmm. and have the person that is running the meeting like sign thing, off. Yeah. And it's so embarrassing your after. Yeah. <laughs> your little court card. Mm -hmm. Well, you had a liver card. Yeah. Um, have you ever read anything by Joe Dispenza? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah I just read um, You Are the Placebo. Okay, so I'm reading his newest book, which is, let me pull it up on my Audible, so I that way him on Instagram I can, um, but he talks about this woman who, in the second chapter, um, let me pull this up, Becoming Supernatural, um, whose husband just disappeared one day and committed suicide, left her with two kids, and over the course of, I think it was nine years, she became sicker and sicker and sicker and literally ended up with cancer. She had ulcers all over her mouth, her privates, her internal organs. She was completely dying. They were like, this is it. And she left the hospital 
one day and decided that she was not going to do treatment. And her friend took her to one of Joe's talks. She did the meditations. And a year and a half later, all of her symptoms, except for one, were gone. So she completely reversed her cancer. She reversed all of this, all of the ulcers, all of the stuff that was going on, even her depression. Mm -hmm. And then um, she went to another one of Joe's talks a few months after that. And she... um, she still had ulcers in her mouth because her salivary glands were shut off by some medication that they had given her in the past. And she just had this thought, oh, maybe I can actually turn these back on. So she did another six months of meditation just focusing on that, Mm -hmm. and they turned back on. And she completely reversed everything that had transpired. And I, I do believe, and I'm actually reading this book right now because I've been battling some very weird health stuff my, myself. And I believe in our body's ability, especially through healing our autonomic nervous system and accessing our, um, uh, why am I blanking right now? You know what I'm talking about. Pineal gland. Pineal gland. <laughs> Thank you. Um, we both have kids, and I was just ta- t- we were talking before we started about how tired I am and how tired you are, <laughs> um, and healing ourselves. So I think that it is really remarkable when mm-hmm. people can can do that. Yeah, you really can. I mean, I uh, I, I know for a, f- a fact that you know so much of what took place in my own healing had nothing to do with you know external. Um, it obviously had something to do with nutrition yeah. and it had something to do with exercise, but a lot of it was believing I was going to get better. And that's what it sounds like to me that by making that conscious choice after that moment that was so low for you and, and seeing your dogs and just seeing your spirit. And mm-hmm. I feel like that moment I had a very similar moment where someone just really saw me for me and loved me regardless. And it changed my entire life. In those moments, it's like, okay, I'm just going to do the next indicated action and the next indicated action and the next one and the next Mm -hmm. one and the next one. And I'm going to care about myself. And those things change our lives. Yeah, 100%. I, uh, yeah, there's we could un, we could dive into a, to a lot right there. Um, yeah, I, I uh, it's funny, you know, things were so simple in early sobriety. It was so simple for me. Mm. It was just like you said, the next indicated step. Yep. And it's only as life has gotten more complicated over the last several years that, you know, I feel um, symptoms returning and 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 I, you mm. know, I'm starting to, to to slip and slide sideways and and I find myself in in lulls of depression and and you know not knowing why and. Um, a lot of it is just getting away from from what got me here in the first place, you know, and, and allowing l- life to kind of take over and, and reprioritize my life. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, honestly, that's kind of where I am now. You know, I, I know a lot of for me, you know, sobriety podcasts or podcasts having to do with recovery talk a lot about, you know, how seemingly life is perfect. And for me, it's mm-hmm. it's honestly not. You know, if if I didn't stay close to the program now, you know, I'd be in if I didn't value my sobriety and really, um, I guess be vulnerable about where I am, I'd be in bad shape. Yeah. Um, because you know, I, part of me expected like you got 10 years of sobriety, right? Especially early. I thought that it should just be coasting from here on out. It's not, I'd have some kind of, yeah. I always say choosing the spiritual path, choosing the path of recovery is the harder path. It's much easier to bury ourselves. It's much easier to put the, you know, our fingers in our ears and pretend that life isn't happening and to escape. Mm -hmm. That is the easier path. The harder path is being present. The harder path is self-care. The harder path is walking through these fiery moments in our lives and staying sober, staying grounded, staying connected. It is so hard. I think the reason I got so much better in the early days and and what I need to kind of, what I would love to re-engage in is I was just stoked. I was stoked. You know, I was happy. I was genuinely happy to be alive and I didn't know I could feel that way. Yeah. You know, I hadn't I hadn't felt naturally happy to be alive maybe since I was a child or definitely since I was a child. So I think a lot of how my body healed itself then cuz there was a lot of problems. I mean, I had just about everything going on, you know. Um and like I said, they, you know, hospice was a genuine option for me. 
Um, but I got so excited about life and so excited about like, holy shit, this is all possible. You know, I, I can, I'm, I'm legitimately happy right now and I got nothing. I don't even have coffee in my system, you know, and, and that thought that, that thought, um, kind of ran me upside the head regularly back then and, and connecting with people, uh, sober, having real meaningful connections just lifted me up. Like you wouldn't believe I just, you know, I'd had so many bullshit interactions for so long that I'd I guess I didn't really know what connecting was true, true connecting. And, um, I think that's why I love working in, in prison so much is that, um, you know, you're not connecting over trivial, you're not talking about the fucking weather, you know, and you're not talking about, um, you know, air Jordans or or whatever you're talking about real, real Real life things. You're talking about potentially facing life in prison, or you're talking about, you know, not having seen your kids or what does it mean to you to have been petting a dog? now for the first time in 15 years or what is it you know all these things that are or you got a parole hearing coming up and and where you know we're working on a um, on a letter for your for your parole hearing all these things that are like critically important you know and helping helping men access an emotional side of them that's been completely shut off you know that that's been one of the best like discovering my vulnerability in sobriety i think is the greatest gift i've ever been given you know and and uh, being oh i had a I had skewed understandings of what masculinity meant. You know, I'm masculinity. I've always been pretty, I've raised around women and gay men to a degree. So I've, I've always had a pretty balanced understanding, but at the same time, it was, I had pretty old fashioned ideas of what masculinity was. And, um, and I don't anymore, you know, masculinity to me is much more involves much more vulnerability and emotional honesty and, and accessibility and, um, not just, you know, rubbing dirt on your wounds so to speak yeah 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 absolutely so here you were getting better and working with these animals how did you transition the program into or how did you come up with the idea of starting to work in the prison population yeah that's a good question um so i've always wanted to do it you know i've always thought it would be fascinating because we we live in an area in kern county where there's prisons all over the place there's tons the central valley has like 17 prisons um but i had a um i was fostering a dog named shadow who's a pit bull and this gal reached out to me and she said um her son had just been released from prison he'd been incarcerated for 13 years and she was um you know worried about him and uh, he came up to the house with his mom to meet shadow to potentially adopt shadow and you know he's covered in jailhouse tattoos and um struggled to make eye contact, but I, I fell in love with him or right, right off the bat. You know, I fell in love with this man, um, this person who got through that much in car. He was incarcerated as a kid, you know, and, and, uh, he was, he didn't break, you know, he made it through that horrific experience and he, but he was nonetheless very feral, you know, um, really not ready for life outside of prison conversations, interacting with women, men, it didn't matter. It was, everything was new and terrifying, you know, and strange. Um, so he, you know, he, he immediately bonded with shadow and was like, it was the missing link for him. It was a variable that, that he needed in order to be successful. And so he adopted shadow and, and then we became, you know, incredibly close friends. And, um, you know, even to this day, there's, there's nobody that, that kind of, um, compares to Robbie in terms of what we've been through and, and, uh, what the discussions that we've had and things that we've accomplished and, and, you know, regardless of all the turmoil, you know, he's a person that I'll, that I'll love, you know, just about more than anyone. Um, but he was just a guy that needed to be believed in and he didn't have a, a means to really accomplish that. And shadow sent him on this trajectory where he started giving his testimony. He started talking, like speaking in public. You know, my mom at the time was working at the mission. She still does. And, so he started sharing his testimony at the mission and he started, um, you know, he had his dog with him everywhere. And so here was a guy that was probably bound for prison again, but this dog changed the whole trajectory of his life where mm. he's bringing her everywhere. So he's having to interact with people because you bring a dog with you, people are going to stop you. I'm like, what'd you dog mean? You're going to have to talk to him, you know? So it takes you out of your comfort zone and it gives you that, that, you know, that therapy, that dog was his, basically his service dog, you know, that allowed him to access to so much more of the world that he otherwise wouldn't have had access to. Cause I know what it's like. I mean, you, it's so, like you just said, it's so much easier to just close yourself off yeah. than to open yourself up. Yeah. 
So that was a that was the catalyst to say, all right, shit, we got to try to do this. We got to try and get into prisons and give these guys what Robbie got with. I mean, and Robbie went on to be the director at a shelter in Oklahoma, and then we hired him to be our ranch manager. And so, you know, he's capable of, of incredible things. He just needed to be believed in and needed to have something that kind of uh, altered his trajectory. And so uh, we got shut down for basically four years trying to get into different prisons, mainly trying to get into Lairdo, which was a jail, it's a county jail in Kern County. And we reached out to tons of other people. And the reality of it is, is they're just not incentivized to do so. There's no reason why they would want prison yeah. programs. So, you know, they're in the business of locking people up. They're not, even though it's called California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. It's There's not no really, rehabilitation. No, not no. Really. It's starting to change a little bit um, in California. You know, we have things like Prop 57 and AB 109, which are letting out you know, or recategorizing nonviolent offenders yeah. and um, and requiring more programming. This California state budget just passed, I think, six million bucks for for programming and a new round of innovative program grants and stuff. But and then the president with the First Step Act was a big deal. The the First Step Act, you know, deals with federal prisons and 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 it kind of really encourages second chance hiring and really encourages more programs in federal institutions. Um, that's why we're starting our first federal prison program next month it's an all women's prison in victorville mm. um so there's things happening it's just really slow like like i just said to you six six million dollars was allocated for programs um i think california it costs eighty three thousand dollars a year to incarcerate one person I in know. california yeah one person and if they have mental health issues it's even higher it's 400 grand to incarcerate a kid yeah you know and so <laughs> it's just it's mind-boggling we spend almost 200 billion dollars a year california spends several billion dollars a year to lock up people and then we get six million dollars for grants and we're supposed to slow clap like it's yeah the biggest deal. <laughs> like, and that's like what do you guys it's like <laughs> yeah thanks it's, it's a nothing percentage and, yeah um you know recidivism in this country is astronomical um you know within six years 80, something like 85% return. of people return to prison. Yeah. And again, at a cost of 83,000 per inmate and not to mention creating victims, you know, all those, when violent offenders get out of prison and they don't have an option, you know, what are, what are they going to do? They become, they create yeah. victims again. Yeah. And, um, and people almost, and this is my experience. Cause I went, I remember my first time in jail that I, I did a sentence a summer and when I got out, I remember the officer was like, yeah, you'll probably be back here in a couple of months. Everybody is. And I was like, I'm not coming back here. And sure enough, in a couple of months, I was back there. But there were so many people that were just below the poverty line that literally committed crimes to go to jail so that they'd have a roof over their head and food to eat for a little while. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a it's an astonishing culture. It's a very, very interesting culture. All, all of prison is, you know. I give my hats off to anybody who can get through prison and maintain their humanity mm -hmm. and um, and hold on to, yeah, their their ability to um, not be um, kind of wrecked, you know, like like permanently wrecked. Um, yeah. And I think that's what why I've one of the reasons why I've taken such an interest in dog programs is I see what it's capable of. There, there's a type of healing that takes place, and there's a, a type of emotional exchange that 100% readies people for the outside. You know, you're really connecting. And, and, and I'm so proud of, you know, all of the trainers that we have that go in. We have 10 trainers that go in, including myself. And none of them go in and proselytize. None of them go in and just do the bare minimum. They're all fucking invested. I mean, mm. they, we love, we love our people, you know, and, and I'm a second, I'm a second chance. I'm like a million chancer. Chance. <laughs> you know? And a lot of these guys are too, yeah. but it just goes to show like, um, you know, we, I don't know. We're a nation of forgiveness and we're a nation of second chances. And yeah. we're, and we ought to, um, we live in such a strange cultural time where, where we like to prop ourselves up by, um, categorizing and tearing down others, you know? So for whatever reason in America, it makes sense to stick people in prisons and, and we feel hundred percent comfortable with that yeah. because we can just malign them, identify them as a threat and kind of unsalvageable, uh, and say, oh, well, they're, they're those bad people. We yeah. keep the bad, we dress the bad, bad people in blue and we keep them there. Yeah. And then we, we just probably should keep them there for as long as possible to protect us because, you know, they're, 
they're you know broken people or and and they can't be salvaged and I'm here to tell you, like, that's such horseshit. It's not even funny. I mean, there's more potential in... We have two and a half million people are locked up in America. Two and a half million. That's 25% of the world's incarcerated are in America. Yeah. And and there's so much potential. I mean, people that, um, that have just uh, incredible innate abilities, talents, you know, smarts. A lot of people, the majority of people that are locked up are you know, have some relationship with alcohol and drugs that's not good and, you know, and or come from fundamentally broken homes. That's what I was going to say. At the root of all of this um, is trauma. And I would would say, and there's probably no statistics around this, but like 100% of these people have been traumatized and they use you know, to cope with that and and then the problems, you know, Mm -hmm. happen. Yeah. And so when you go into prisons and you give these people hope and you give them community and you have trainers and people like yourself that come in and say, like, what happened to you? And and how does this feel? And what are your hopes and dreams? Mm -hmm. And that actually develop connections with others, then, of course, it would make sense that they'd Mm -hmm. get better. Totally. And I mean, they're some of my best friends. Honestly, mm. um, you know, we went to Jason's wedding. He he's been out now for uh, it'll be coming up on is a year and a half, almost two years. You know, he we got to go to his wedding and, and Jamal. You know, like when I'm having a hard time, when we've been dealing with some, for lack of a better word, bullshit lately. You know, and um, just we've been dealing with some tough times. And um, the people that are always first to message me are my guys. You know, mm. I'll get a text from Troy or Jamal or, or cool just saying, Hey man, I love you. And I'm grateful for you. And, um, you know, to have that kind of vulnerability and emotional, um, accessibility, you know, from people who spent the last 15 years locked up in a place where you can't, you can't even say you're happy or sad, you know, because it's basically not allowed And, and they're, you know, um, opening up to that degree. It's a really beautiful thing, you know, and it just goes to show that, um, uh, in many cases, what these guys needed is just an opportunity to one, like you said, have hope, you know, when you don't have hope and I didn't have hope for a very, very, very long time, you, you can't get out of your rut. You mm-hmm. know, if you don't have hope, you're fucked. And, um, and it's easy to lose it, you know, and, and, and it's easy to have it taken away. You know, people can, if we're sensitive enough, people can kind of remove your hope through trauma, through a yeah. series of whether, it, you know, what, whatever. And that's kind of what happened to me. Um, I just didn't believe in myself anymore. And once you don't believe in yourself, uh, you know, it's really, really tough. And so a lot of these guys just need someone to believe in them. And when, when that happens, when you inspire that, them, them to believe in themselves, like the, the sky's the limit. They just launch out into um, this, this, pathway to success you know um and everybody deserves that you know we have these fundamentally broken people that need to be propped up and infused with some confidence and some love or or else or else mm-hmm. you know and, or or else your family could be victimized by them by them do you want to talk about that's a convenient fact that we leave out is if the two and a half million people that are incarcerated right now all get out of prison and reoffend, that's a shitload of victims that you know, who's accountable for that? Is yeah. it the prison system? Is it us? You know, who who's accountable for all these people who are being let out of prison with, without the means to succeed? You know, and my dad, my dad said one time, he's like, well, what do you expect when they've got, you know, this is early on in the program. He's like, they got, you know, tattoos on their face. And I was like, dad, you know, and my dad very much so understands all this now. Um, but when you're a felon and you get out of prison, you might as well have a gigantic. F it, it, doesn't on your it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Yeah. It does not it matter. Matter. I mean, matter. Daniel Robinson, he was incarcerated for I don't remember how many years. It was a long time, more than a decade. And Danny got arrested at 17, spent two years at county, and then transferred to a variety of different prisons. He got five degrees in prison. Five. He's an incredibly smart guy. And then he was in our program for two years training you know, really difficult dogs from all over the world. He, he trained a Korean meat trade dog, a Chinese dog. And, um, and when he got out, he applied for a job at PetSmart and they denied him because he didn't meet the minimum requirement. Yeah. I mean, it was a complete bullshit. I mean, this guy's got five college degrees and, and he's been training dogs basically nonstop for two years. 
and you're going to tell me that he, you know, can't so work at PetSmart. Yeah, the deck is yeah. stacked in a in a in a fundamentally cruel way. Also, you know, there's there's so much depth to some of these guys when you've gotten through incarceration. There's so much depth to um, kind of what you can offer because you can inherently relate to people and their um, their low points. Yeah, you know, people always ask me if you could go back in time and not have such a public past and not have been a twice convicted felon and not had all of this stuff would you and my answer is always no because the ability to be able to sit down and have these connections like to listen to your story and go oh my god I relate to that so much and wow we have so much in common and look at the way that we're helping people and connecting with others it's like I would never I wouldn't trade it for the world yeah totally I wouldn't uh, the (laughs) getting liver disease was the best thing that ever happened to me fuck I can't imagine what if I didn't get sick who knows? Like, what would I have done? Continued for the next, whatever, 20 years, just yeah. hurting myself and other people. And look how many people you've been able to help. So let's talk yeah. about that. How many prisons are you guys in right now? We are in five. So we've been in, we're in, we have two programs at North Kern State Prison. So we have a level three and a level one. The level one pairs dogs. We work with dogs of service to uh, help pair uh, veterans with not service dogs with emotional support dogs. It's mm-hmm. it's our experience that most veterans don't really need service dogs. They need the right energy to, to pair up with. Um, so those two programs are at North Kern. We have a program at Wasco. Each of those are, I think, eight dogs, 24 inmates. Um, California City was our pilot program, 10 dogs, 30 inmates. And we run three programs a year. Then we also have the only juvenile girls program in America where rescue dogs live in juvenile hall. Uh, it's called juvenile justice in Bakersfield. So those are a variety of different girls between the between the age of thirteen and eighteen. And um, yeah, we have two. We just started. And we bring the dogs in this week. So we uh, Sam and I run that program, and it's the best. You know, it's uh, the girls are are. I think the girls are tougher than the guys yeah. in many ways. They mm-hmm. fight more. They uh, they're they're tough, man. But um, and some of these girls have been through. You know, things I would have a hard time even articulating, you know, in terms of trafficking and, you know, basically been treated as possessions uh, and their kids, man. I mean, some of these girls yeah. have been to juvenile hall eight times and they're not adults yet. So, you know, trying to, to access the youth. Um, I mean, really, there's just fuck, I, I just love it. I mean, being able to we get in trouble for this sometimes, but getting able being able to dole out affection in a place like that where, where people are, they might not be overtly starving for it, but mm-hmm. you can tell emotionally that they're starving for acceptance, starving for connection, starving for, um, someone to be emotionally available yeah. to them. And so to be able to offer that, you know, um, is, is, you know, I get my worth through acts of service. Like I, I gen generally don't think highly of myself. You know, my sponsor says I'm an egomaniac with an inferiority complex, you know, that I don't think much of myself, but that's all that I think about. And it's true, you know, but when I'm engaged in acts of service, I, I give myself credit. You know, I feel like I'm worthy, um, of, of canceling out a lot of the things I've done in my past that I'm worthy of being where I am. Um, and so to get the opportunity to do that, to, you know, to, to provide hope to people is really, really special. Um, I just feel incredibly humbled that I get the opportunity to do it and that I get to be available to people and that I get to, uh, you know, it's challenging for sure, but it's, uh, it's the most rewarding thing I've ever done by, by far, you know? Amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Where can people learn more? Well, we are, um, we're in the process of opening five more prison programs. So one, not too far from here in Riverside, another one in Victorville, and then another Department of Juvenile Justice program. we got a lot going on. So you can see all that on Instagram at Positive Change Program. You can go to marleysmutz.org, which is our, Marley's Mutz is the rescue that, the, the nonprofit that operates it all. Um, so yeah, you can find us on social media at Marley's Mutz, at Positive Change Program, um, and just go to marleysmutz.org. You can donate, you can get involved in a variety of ways. What listeners should understand is that digital advocacy 
being on a program like this, having people comment and come over to our page and check it out and share it, that that is what's gotten us to the next level. You know, through digital advocacy and sharing, that's how we found, that's how Kristen Bell found our program. That's how a lot of different celebrities found our program and are helping us keep it alive. You know, we don't have support from the state. We do all this with donations from people like you and I. This is how mm-hmm. we survive. So the more people we can inspire and connect to this program, that's that's how we're going to grow. That's how we're going to achieve more uh, success and affect more lives. And, and it it is a grassroots community movement. So anybody listening to this, anybody who finds out about this can be the, the next missing link that helps get us to the next level. I mean, you don't have to have money. You don't have to have influence. There's so many ways to get involved, you know, to make a difference and, uh, and to bring purpose into your own life. You know, that's why, that's the most um, rewarding thing about nonprofit work is bringing purpose into your own life and getting yourself out of the mundane kind of um, humdrum humdrum of life yeah amazing well thank you so much zach i appreciate you coming on thank you i appreciate it if you guys liked this episode do me a solid head over to the podcast app and make sure that you are subscribed to recovering from reality not just subscribed but give me five stars if you really liked it comment make a review. I really appreciate it. And if you're listening on your phone, you could even screenshot a picture of you listening and tag me up on Instagram and I'll do my best to share it within the community. So thanks for listening, you guys. And I hope you loved this episode. This week's affirmation is I have the courage to create positive change in my life. And so it is. It is.